I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present the Liturgy Guys. Hey, just one quick announcement before we start the show. I know I tricked you. We usually do this before the intro, but this is a really important announcement for us. 20 years ago, His Eminence Francis Cardinal George established the Liturgical Institute to prepare Catholics for a new era in liturgical renewal. In the span of two decades, the Liturgical Institute has become the preeminent place for liturgical renewal in America and beyond. Today, we are proud to continue this mission through our degree programs, online courses, videos, and this award-winning podcast. But we're just getting started. And I'm asking you to consider becoming one of 200 donors between now and the end of 2020 to make a monthly gift of $20 or more to the Liturgical Institute. This gift, along with those of countless other supporters, will make it possible to continue liturgical renewal and bring about a true second spring in our third decade of existence. So if you would be so kind to contribute to this campaign, we are really in need of $220 a month donors. You can go to donate.liturgy.online and fill out everything there. These are tax-deductible donations. If you are currently a Patreon supporter and you want to migrate and move over to this, that's totally awesome. I would love for you to do that. I would love for you to get a tax deduction on these gifts. So, Again, if you're interested in helping us out, please go to donate.online.liturgy. Now, back to the show. Uh, It's almost time for a new year, right? And you know what I love about this podcast we're about to record, Jesse? That it exists? Well, it's about Advent, (laughs) which is very, very nice and attribute of God. But I have nothing to do in this podcast. Chris has prepared it. I've never heard about it until just now. So I'm going to put my feet up on the desk and uh, chime in every now and again and let Chris do all the work. You know how I roll on these things, so I ask a lot of questions. Dennis, welcome to my world. To your world. (laughs) (laughs) It's sort of like Jesus is the true liturgist and we participate. This is what it's like when Mm -hmm. Chris is leading a podcast. Mm -hmm. We'll see about Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Well, Mm -hmm. without intelligence, there is no participation. Well, I guess Chris isn't going to be participating. (laughs) We can do a podcast without intelligence. All right, let's, let's be advantageous. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so these are these are some uh, what I've called pastoral notes about uh, Advent, and uh, in my job in the liturgy office, I have occasion to talk to uh, new parish administrators, uh, new priests, uh, things like that, and so just try to bring up different things uh, that are relevant to the season. So I did this uh, the other day, and I thought maybe others out there might. Uh, might uh, enjoy these insights about uh, the Advent, uh, Advent season. They're not necessarily deep spiritual ones, but they're kind of liturgical pointers, I guess I would say. So why don't we start with this, Dennis? When does Advent begin? At the beginning of Advent. Yes! Yes. Nailed it! That's correct. I I should get my bell. Shouldn't I get the bell? Here, talk about something smart while I get the bell. If we're really being true to ourselves, I think Advent begins in the Garden of Eden, oh, way back right. in the creation. Right. Well, of since Dan- Dennis ran away here, we had, I have to. Oh, now he's back. But how do they know when to affix the first Sunday of Advent? Uh, 
Well, there's a certain number of days in the... Four Sundays before Christmas? Yeah, the four weeks, right? Yeah, four well, see, that's just it. There aren't a certain number of days. There's, I mean, there's always 40 days. Yeah, you're right. There's a, there's a number of Sundays, and so you can kind of work back. You pick the Sunday before the 25th, and that's the 4th, and then the 3rd, and the 2nd. You count the back from Gaudere, Gaudate, Gaudere. <laughs> Three purples in a pink, and you know yeah. where to start. Yeah. <laughs> Three purples in a pink. Uh, so this year, what, it's on the, the 29th, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and it's the Sunday closest to the Feast of St. Andrew, which is November 30th. So Advent can basically start as early as, I think, November 27th or as late as December 3rd. All right. Mm-hmm. But once Advent starts, so sometimes you'll hear that Advent is kind of like a little Lent. And in some ways, mm-hmm. it's kind of like hey, the priest is wearing the same colors. Um, but is it? What is the purpose of Advent? It's a hopeful, expectant preparation for the coming of Christ. That's pretty good. There's a twofold purpose. This is what the, uh, what this must be from the general norms for the liturgical year and calendar. It says, Advent has a twofold character, for it is a time of preparation for the solemnities of Christmas in which the first coming of the Son of God to humanity is remembered. And so on the second Sunday of Advent and the third Sunday of Advent, we have John the Baptist stuff. And then the fourth Sunday of Advent are accounts of the nativity. So that's the one looking back to the first coming. And likewise, a time when by remembrance of this, minds and hearts are uh, led to look forward to Christ's second coming at the end of time. And so the readings on the first Sunday of Advent are all about the second coming of Christ. For these two reasons, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, Advent is a period of devout and expectant delight. Mm-hmm. And so while there might be some similarities to Lent, Lent would not be described as a period of devout and expectant delight. Lent is a period to, pr- to prepare to participate in the Paschal mystery of Christ. Whether it's first time as uh, somebody's about to be initiated or as kind of recalling your baptism. So some things are similar, some things are different. I remember there was some discussion on Father Z's blog about whether Advent was a penitential season. Mm-hmm. And I believe he came down on the side that it was. Mm-hmm. And there was some discussion about that. If I remember right, this was quite a while ago. And I think is the notion is preparation is part of it, but part of preparation is learning to quiet your own desires mm-hmm. and learning mm-hmm. to focus on God and all that. So isn't it, it like seemed the, to be right isn't to it me. Like yeah. the um, the women in the oil lamps and being prepared uh, for the wedding feast and you know not refraining from using all of their oil so that they can be prepared. There's this anticipatory, um, hopeful penitence that you can uh, express. Yeah, well, devout and expectant delight. You know, what's so Jesus is coming, look busy. So, I mean, if if it's a time to get ready for Christ's second coming, you could probably imagine that maybe some sort of penitential practices might be uh, in your near future if you knew he was coming soon. So, okay, so that's what it's about. So if this is the reality, the liturgy wants to sacramentalize and ritualize and convey somehow devout and expectant delight. So here's a couple of, signs of the times of these advent times i'll call them the gloria do you hear the gloria during advent no (laughs) except for the pink sunday uh yeah see this this is good um no that's not right 
So wow. Gaudete Sunday still does not have a Gloria, oh. but other uh, the Gloria is said on Sundays outside of Advent and Lent, and also on solemnities and feasts. So in Advent, you have the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception, so you would use it then. Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, you would use it then. If there was a confirmation or a wedding, you would use the Gloria then. Okay, but not on any of the Advent Sundays. Okay, so okay. again, it's trying I to. Con- it's no, no. It's 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 confusing. It really is. Um, but again, so how you use certain texts and sing in a certain way is trying to communicate this devout and expectant to light. Uh, the vestments, I think you talked about that already. There's the, the violet uh, vestments, except for Gaudete Sunday, which is a rose vestment. Right. And I was joking about three purples and a pink. I pre- much prefer violet and rose than pink. Violet and rose is an old joke. Uh, flowers and decorations. What, are the, what about that? Can you have flowers in the sanctuary and whatnot? I would say probably not, or minimal at the very yeah. best. Yeah, yeah. During Advent, the floral decoration of the altar should be marked by a moderation suited to the character of this time of year, which is devout and expectant delight, right. without expressing the in anticipation the full joy of the nativity of the Lord. Yeah, so moderation, I think. Imagine if you're opening your Christmas presents every day during Advent. Christmas would be just another one of those days, right? So <laughs> you step back a little bit and you say, okay, by, you would think if it's all happy, joyful, expectant delight, you'd want a little mm. delight in some of that stuff, but you're actually saying, I'll wait, I'll wait. So the day of suddenly has this distinct character. Yeah. Uh, the organ, too, can be used in moderation. Now compare this to what the germ says about the organ in Lent. Uh, for, then the, for Lent, the organ is only to be used uh, to support the singing. So it's mm-hmm. different. Advent is a different character than does Lent. What does it say about the teenagers on the electric drum set? Uh, it doesn't really say anything about that. No. <laughs> That's for Good Friday only. Probably yeah. you sh- those should be of a, of, a, of a minimum most days of the year. Yeah, agreed. Okay, some other things that happen around uh, this time is in many dioceses, they have what's called the rite of acceptance or the rite of welcome. Do you know what those are? Is that for catechumens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, this rite of acceptance into the order of catechumens happens very oftentimes in many places at the beginning of, uh, of uh, Advent, or the rite of welcome into, uh, you know, as a candidate for full reception. And so I don't know what you're going to see at your parishes this year, you know, given all these other, uh, you know, restrictions and whatnot that uh, are in place. But it's an it's a excellent rite insofar as it begins with these adults at the beginning of uh, the Mass. At uh, Have you seen this, Jesse? Yeah, at the beginning of Mass. Yes, uh, at I the have. Do- okay, so they're at the door of the church, and the priest comes, and he says, he asks them these questions. Uh, who are you? What do you want? And why? It's like the Wizard of Oz. I always think of that. <laughs> well, you, what it should remind you of, it's the same sort of thing that happens at the uh, baptism of an infant. Begins at the door, ask what your name is, what do you ask of God's church. Then there's this signing of uh, the senses. Again, I don't know how that's supposed to work this year. Uh, where the godparent, the priest and the godparent uh, signs the uh, candidate uh, on uh, the senses. With the cotton swab attached to yeah. a pair of tongs, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then they enter into the church. And so, you know, what happens uh, at the baptism of an infant in about 20 minutes is going to take about 15 months or nine months or two years for an adult. And this is that, those entrance rites. 
So that's something that uh, happens in many places at the beginning of uh, Advent. Uh, what about Advent wreaths? Do you guys see uh, in the in the churches you go to? Is there an Advent wreath? Usually, yeah. That's one thing that seems to have made it through the liturgical minimalization. Is it's, it's easy to understand and it's obvious. People, yeah, but it's certainly not a mandatory thing. But they they do it, again. It's one of those sort of devotional things that has a legitimate attachment to uh, to the liturgy. So there, many sanctuaries have a. Um, a blessing of the Advent wreath. So, but that they have one is one thing, but how to bless this? I've seen every variety of ways to bless an Advent wreath. Did you know there is an actual ritual for how to bless the Advent wreath? I would think so, yeah. Yeah. It's in the uh, collection of rituals, the Book of Blessings. Uh, it says, uh, let's see, the Advent wreath is to be used, in, if it's to be used in church, it should be of sufficient size to be visible to the congregation. If it is placed in the sanctuary, so it doesn't need to be, it should not interfere with the celebration of the liturgy, nor should it obscure the altar, the lectern, or the chair. Think of our uh, friend Hans, what was his name? Hans Ansgar Reinhold? H. Yeah, Reinhold. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, gr- that great line about uh, first things first, second things second, and third things on the periphery. Well, well, peripheral be, things on the periphery, yeah. <laughs> peripheral things or, or third things third. This would, this would be one of those, uh, one of those things. Okay. So how do you bless it? The wreath is blessed on the first Sunday of Advent at the conclusion of the universal prayer. That's when it's blessed. The first candle is lit after the blessing. On the succeeding Sundays, the remaining candles are lit before Mass without any additional prayers. Right. So if you're going to follow the actual ritual, you bless it after the universal prayer, you light the candle then, and then there's no ceremony, uh, ceremonial lighting or anything else. What if for the you rest have like uh, four Masses on Sunday? You only blessed that, it at the Jesse, earliest mass. I think we had a great lit- question. We had a liturgy question about this once. I don't. Yeah. I don't remember if we answered it yet or not. Yeah, I know I've gotten it before. Um, I am not entirely sure. I would lean sixty forty to only bless it once, but I think you could make a meritorious argument for blessing it before each of the each of the masses. I mean, blessings well, what about, are, mm-hmm. what about blessing it? This sounds where you're going. Why bless it at all? Well, a blessing. Like you don't bless one. candelabra. You you have candles that are blessed. Why would you bless the wreath? Uh, because the wreath symbolizes or sacramentalizes something of greater importance than a candelabra. Okay. And that the, remember what a blessing is. Literally, the blessing is the good word who is Christ. And it's like every blessing that is prayed is a communication and manifestation of the good word. And so it's an occasion of grace and prayer and things like that. And so it's not that, see, they talk in blessings of some are called constitutive. It's like it changes the thing, in this case, the the wreath. Others are called invocative. Yeah. Most people think constitutive are what blessings are, right? You've taught me about this, but it's it's complicated stuff here, isn't it? It is complicated. So I think um, it's not so much that there's this sort of sacramental character of some kind in the wreath, so it doesn't need to be blessed again. It's an occasion for the hearers to offer a prayer and to hear the the, the the great logos who is Christ and you know so wouldn't that 
put your slant more towards re-blessing it because if it's less about the actual wreath yeah. and more about the people yeah. being yeah. part of the mm. blessing, shouldn't yeah. it be 60-40 re-bless? Yeah. Well, that, yeah, that was a good argument I just made there for, the, for flipping that around. Uh, but I think... Um, that was a good argument you I, just made too, Jesse, by the way. Yeah. Well, it was Chris's I mean, argument you, against his original should argument. Should you uh, bless your salad and then bless uh, the the turkey dinner and then bless the dessert? But that's different. No, that's different. Is that different? That is different. That okay. would be like so. What we're talking about is if you do the meal blessing. Yeah. Let's say you let's say you have a uh, progressive Thanksgiving feast, right? So you mm-hmm. have a group of people come in that have a feast. And then you clear the tables and everything, and the new group comes in. Do you have to do a new blessing? And I would say it's a new group of people mm. with new food, and you probably would do. You probably mm. would, mm. especially if it's not um, changing anything yeah. in the actual wreath itself. Because otherwise, you'd say, "Look, we used that same wreath last year." So it's this like thing's leftovers. been this thing's right. been right. blessed. I'll, like, I'll, con- oh. I'll say I'm, I'm, I'm to fifty fifty. Okay, and that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> oh, all right. well, that's so definitive. Shut up, Jesse. Now, moving on, Jesse, you and your progressive podcast. Wait, yeah. I just want to—I just want to make it known that we had—we got less clear on this. We went—we <laughs> went from like I'm leaning this way to you know, it's—it's it's either or. Yeah. No. Okay. So why would I? Yeah, keep beating this dead horse, but I think um, there is something of a. It's not a sacramental character that uh, you get at baptism, but I think the, the the wreath does bear a certain, I don't know, reality that comes with it from the blessing. I don't know. We're going to have to leave it there. Okay. Uh, the Christmas manger or scene can also be uh, blessed. It, sh- it says here in the Book of Blessings, though, it's not to be placed in the sanctuary. Did you know that? Ever? Yeah, well, we did a podcast yeah. about this in one of our oh, seasons. Remember when uh, Pope Benedict, Pope uh, Francis, had that oh, nice reflection right. on the meaning of the, that was uh, really crush. good. Yeah, yeah, you should dig that up and repost it. Remember when Jesse. somebody stole the baby Jesus out of the Vatican's manger? Yeah, I don't. Do you guys do? We, they do this in our churches. They, of course, they set up the manger. They don't put the wise men there, and they don't put the baby Jesus there. And then sometimes a kid gets to bring up the the baby Jesus. Oh and, yeah. Before mass or something? Did you ever get to do that? All right. I never got to do it. No. We always sat okay. in the back with our arms crossed. That's how. That was how my family was. This, this child. Okay. Uh, let's go to the next one. This isn't necessarily an Advent Christmas thing, but first of all, do you guys know how many holy days of obligation there are? I thought there were like eight, eight or nine. Yeah. Yeah. In, the Amer- in America. No, there's 10 in the universal church. There's only five in America. Because we oh, are so lazy. Gosh. Don't get oh, me think, started. We'll oh, talk about some that countries later. have only, only one. But three of these 10, or three of the five in our case, happen during Advent and Christmas. All right? So here are the holy days of obligation. See, and uh, you can find this in the code of Canon Law 1246. See, but what the bishops can do is they can transfer some to the nearest Sunday. They can just, uh, what would be the word? Suppress some, they could just not observe others. You can add others in, okay? But uh, here's here's the 10 and here's what we've done with them. Uh, so the first, well, let, let's go from Advent. 
So the first holy day of obligation that you would encounter after Advent starts is? The Immaculate Conception. Conception. Yeah, on December 8th. And so that's a Tuesday. Now, the other thing is, is that normally, uh, if it falls on a Tuesday, this would be a holy day of obligation. But in some places, maybe it's even many places, uh, the bishops have lifted the Sunday obligation. So what does that mean for a holy day of obligation? Is that you mean because of as COVID well? you're talking about? Yeah, because of yeah. COVID. Yeah, good question. Probably the same, <laughs> I would think. Yeah, yeah. I think it is the same, but he has to make it the same. I know in lacrosse, I mean, when we started all this back in March or April or whatever, the bishop came out with this letter lifting the, the dispensation, lifting the obligation, and didn't even think that he would have to do one for... At the holy days, because they weren't until December, right? Because one of the holy days is um, uh, August 15th, which is the Assumption. But this year, I think it was on a Saturday, so there's no obligation. The other one is All Saints Day. That was on a Sunday this year, so there's really no obligation. So uh, December 8th is the first one where you've, you've kind of had to uh, deal with. So depending on where you are, it may or may not be a holy day of obligation. But in any case... Even if you can't go to Mass, you're still supposed to live it in a spirit of uh, joy and relaxation and God-centeredness. Okay, Christmas is uh, the other one. Uh, uh, After Advent starts, December 25th is a Friday. Um, You say about that. Maybe you guys have heard perhaps that um, the earliest you can say Mass, the vigil, is like 4 o'clock in the U.S.? Yeah, and then you can get special permissions. I think our parish that I used to work at did it at like three o'clock. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it's up to the bishop to to give that kind of permission. This uh, and so the uh, Cardinal Seurat reminded bishops that they had the authority to do that because everybody wants to go to mass when on Christmas Eve, but when you can only have twenty five percent capacity in your church, Ooh. then you're going to need more time to celebrate more masses. And so they've done some interesting things. Is uh, in some places, they've moved the earliest time of Christmas Eve Mass in 2020 to like 2 o'clock. And the other thing that accompanies this is a priest can only is only supposed to celebrate one Mass a day. I was, he, ju- I was literally just going to ask that. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but the, the bishop can allow priests to celebrate twice or even uh, three times a day. Well, this year, uh, the Holy See has said that bishops can allow their priests to celebrate four Masses in a day. I bet right? they're so thrilled about that. Oh, uh, well, you know, some are. I'm sure some yeah. aren't. So if you're going to accommodate all of these different uh, masses, then you need to have the permission to do it. So, all right. So Christmas is another one. Holy Mary, Mother of God is uh, January 1st, Friday. Who knows if it's an obligation where you are. Epiphany is one that has been transferred. And so I think for us, uh, it's moved off of the 6th to, uh, to January 3rd. In any case, there's four holy obligate holy days of obligation that are worth uh, noting. All right, and then one more, and then we'll we'll wrap this up. There's of course more things we could say about Advent and Christmas, but there are how many options? How many masses are there for Christmas? Ooh, like, three, three, wrong, four, <laughs> four. Yeah, yeah. There's four. There's a vigil mass. There's a mass midnight. during the night. It's yeah, not called midnight. midnight, but yeah, there's a mass at dawn, dawn. and then there's mass at day. Yeah, oh, this is interesting. Four, wow. It is, yeah. So and we four don't different have that for Easter, right? We just have we just celebrate the same Easter mass four Precisely. times. Precisely, you have one Easter vigil and one Sunday morning. Wait a minute, do those count as different masses then for the they're, priest? They're different in the missal, different prayers. They're actually so. Different, could different he celebrate readings? all four of those without any permission? Uh, 
maybe. I mean, if you did a vigil mass and then the mass at night, there'd be two. And then mass at dawn, mass during the day would be but two more. But they're different masses, so that wouldn't be... Well, they're different texts. They're okay. all masses, but they just use different okay. texts. So, for example, the gospel at the vigil mass is the... The genealogy. Oh, yeah. All right. And so this is the great family mass that all the kids come to and everybody, it's the most popular and they show up and they're supposed to hear the genealogy. And so that's from Mark, right? Uh, yes. So I don't, I don't know actually the answer to this question as I, it, you know, I think the priest is supposed to celebrate the appropriate mass and not choose. Well, I don't like this gospel, so I'm going to choose the the gospel reading for uh, during the night, which is the census is called and Jesus born in the manger and then the uh, angels appear to the shepherds. That's the one everybody wants to hear. But I don't know that a, that the 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 priest celebrant should be mixing and matching like. Uh, oh yeah, I would think uh, they, that you shouldn't. It's a proper time. I would think so in, too. In the time, yeah. Yeah, I would think so, too. But again, maybe there's a permission for that somewhere I'm just not aware of. The Mass at dawn is when the shepherds go to the manger, and the Mass at day is the prologue. In the beginning was the That's word. That's pretty fascinating. Word yeah, isn't it? If so, I remember, the, the liturgical history of that is it started in Rome, and everybody wanted the Pope to come to their different important churches. And he would go to one in the evening the night before he'd go to one in the middle of the night one in the morning one in the midday so he could get everybody there and they developed over time four different mass texts i think hmm. if i remember that right and so it's interesting that you have a particular local situation which is everybody wants the pope to come and then it becomes added to the universal uh, church's calendar or missile that's interesting yeah. wow Huh. Anyway, so there's a handful of things uh, to uh, pique your interest. How about an advent calendar with Christmas. little doors that open and little candies inside? I always wanted one I'm of those. I'm all for it. I think yeah. that is an amazing idea. I, lo I like the ones where it's like you get a bottle of wine every day. <laughs> I'm not familiar with that tradition, but I wish there's it worked. I, I, saw one, I saw one that was uh, uh, Nakatomi Plaza, and it was <laughs> Die Hard, and every time you open a door... The guy falls further and further to his imminent death. Uh, nice. Uh, Nothing says Christmas spirit like that. But everybody debates whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie, and I'm, uh, I say it where is. Where do you come down? Yeah, It's a Christmas movie for sure. I'm about 60-40. <laughs> well, can I get you to 50-50? <laughs> I, right. well, I think the advent calendar is a great thing, not just because it's fun, but you've got expectation, hope, and waiting. Right, Every day you get something awesome. Devout and expectant delight. Every day is getting mm -hmm. closer to the day rather than, you know, flagellating yourself in a hair shirt and then finally taking it off at Easter. Mm -hmm. I mean, at Christmas. So <laughs> there you go. Get some advent cal wreaths, calendars, candies, open doors, cuckoo clocks, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, put that hair shirt away for at least a couple more months. Hey, you know, I gave this talk about uh, God the Father is not angry at you, and I put in the word hair shirt, and some of them came up. You know, they were old, scratchy goat hair. But then there was also someone who made a T-shirt with the print on it of a hairy guy with no shirt on. So you're wearing this T-shirt of like his gold chains oh, and all his hair, I've all his chest those. hair. Yeah. So that's the other kind of hair shirt. That's really funny. All right. Well, should we answer a question then, gentlemen? Mm -hmm. yes. yes, Chris, you got to talk more. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. 
And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this week we have a question from the Twitter account, the Twitter account Liturgical Tidbits. And this question goes, When weekday Mass is followed by adoration, our priest has been omitting the final blessing at Mass in lieu of benediction following adoration. Is this common? Do those who can't stay for adoration just miss out? And then he says, Is benediction at the beginning, beginning of adoration licit? Hmm. All right. Well, let's take the first question first. Uh, it's common what you're describing and is actually absolutely according to Hoyle. So you could find this. Uh, the official text is called Holy Communion and Worship of the Eucharist Outside of Mass. It has a variety of uh, different rituals in it about uh, Holy Communion outside of Mass, communion to the sick, and then it has a section on forms of the Holy Eucharist. And what it says, this is in uh, paragraph number 94, it says, um, uh, the mass ends with the prayer after communion and the concluding rites are omitted. Before the priest leaves, he may place a blessed sacrament on the throne and incense it. Yeah, so that's uh, precisely how it should work is that uh, host would be consecrated at that mass and... Uh, the the priest would uh, uh, probably put the monstrance on the altar during the at the end of the communion rite. Leave the the consecrated host in a pyx or a lunette, uh, and then go to the chair, say the prayer after communion, uh, and then that's it. He would go put the uh, lunette in the monstrance, turn it towards the people, and then go kneel in front of the altar and incense it. So yeah, that's just how it's supposed to be done. Now to that second question, to do so, what happens then is people would pray silently for a while and then depart uh, as they needed to. So there would be no final blessing. Uh, as to the second part about having benediction at the beginning of the period of adoration, I guess the best we can say is that the books don't seem to envision anything like that. I've never seen that uh, described in any ritual book. Um, the benediction always seems to come at the end. Now, perhaps some exceptions might be Imagine a Corpus Christi procession uh, where the, the monstrance would stop at different altars and there a benediction would be given. Um, and then maybe like a 40 hours devotion, which is something that just was not a part of my, where I grew up, they just never did that. I, there may be occasions during 40 hours devotion where benedictions might be given, but on the whole, I think the the books describe the benediction coming at the end of the uh, of the period of adoration. All right, Dennis, did you want to add anything? No, just to say, I'm still living and breathing. <laughs> oh, good. But Chris is such a genius. <laughs> I just decided to let him talk. All right, all right. Well, if you want to ask us a question, you can tweet us at Liturgy Guys, or you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com, or you can tweet Dennis at Dmax Super Taster. Or, just forget it, Chris will never be able to be contacted. We've tried many a times, and it just won't happen. Yep. Sorry, guys. 
All right. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College. Now that's a podcast.